Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we'll look at a powerful queen who inherited one kingdom from her father, took over another, and was able to be elected queen of a third, creating a union of three nations that lasted over a century. And she did all this while ruling queens were still an extreme rarity in Western Europe. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 8, Margaret I of Denmark, and this is the Almost Forgotten... Margaret was born in 1352, the child of Valdemar IV, King of Denmark. Her mother was Helvig, from Schleswig, a duchy in the south of Denmark. Margaret was their sixth and youngest child, although at the time of her birth, only three of her siblings were still alive. When she was born, her father wasn't a well-loved king, but Denmark had been in shambles when he came to the throne. Much of the kingdom had been mortgaged off by his predecessors. He stripped the nobles of their rights, he instituted crushing taxes, and he generally made life difficult for those who disagreed with him. He also brought Denmark back from the brink to once again be a formidable northern European power. To Denmark's north were the other Scandinavian countries. Norway and Sweden were two different kingdoms, ruled by one family in a personal union. And they included a few islands north of Scotland, as well as Iceland and even parts of Greenland. At the time, Edward III was the powerful king of England, and the Hundred Years' War was kicking off in France, which suffered through the catastrophic Battle of Crecy in 1346. John the Good became king in 1350, and Philip the Bold fought by his side, becoming the Duke of Burgundy in 1363. Season 6. Spain was still a century away from unity with, besides Portugal, Aragon, Castile, and the Emirate of Granada still on the peninsula. The Holy Roman Empire ruled Central Europe, and it was ruled by the King of Bohemia. But besides power concentrating there, the northern part of Germany had its own power concentrated in the Hanseatic League, which was a major part of the empire, but extended beyond it as well. Further east, Poland was powerful once again after a period of stagnation, although the Grand Duchy of Lithuania was the largest state in the region and was also a formidable one. The two would be united through a personal union before the century ended. The Teutonic Order ruled the lands in the eastern Baltic, while various Russian principalities lay to their east and were on the cusp of pushing back against Mongol hegemony. The Byzantine Empire was beyond help at this point. The Ottomans wouldn't take Constantinople for another century, but they had already taken most of Anatolia and had established themselves on the European side of the Bosporus. To their south, the Mamluk Sultanate was still strong in Egypt, but was going through a series of succession crises. Several sultanates held possessions of lands across northern Africa, while the great empire of Mali 
ruled over vast swaths of West Africa, south of the Sahara. Further south, the Kingdom of Congo was forming. And in the east, Makuria and Alodia were in decline in Nubia, while in Ethiopia, the Solomonic dynasty was well established. Further into Asia, Mongol successor states held lands from Mesopotamia, north to the European steppe, across to the Indus Valley, and then in the north, as far east as the Pacific. But change was afoot. Tibet became independent again in the 1350s, shaking off Mongol rule, and the Ming dynasty took control of China in 1368. Timur ruled the Chagatai Khanate by 1370, eventually stretching his empire from Tashkent to Aleppo and Tbilisi. India was still under the Delhi Sultanate, but it had passed from the Khalji clan to a new dynasty. Further east, Burma was divided into several kingdoms, while the Ayutthaya kingdom emerged to rule over much of Thailand. Its origin is traditionally dated to 1350. The Khmer Empire was in decline at this point, and Srivijaya on the Malay Peninsula and Sumatra was in even worse shape. Across the Pacific, the kingdom of Cusco was still small compared to other cultures in the Andes, while Tenochtitlan had been established for a few decades in Mesoamerica. The post-classical Mayan League of Mayapan was the power in the Yucatan. To the north, the Middle Mississippian culture was the dominant group, and the ancestral Puebloans were in the American Southwest, while the Navajo may have arrived there just around this time. And so, now, back across the Atlantic to Scandinavia. Margaret's father, King Valdemar, had achieved some success in bringing Denmark back from the edge, which is why he stayed in power. Because the monarchy in these Germanic kingdoms of Scandinavia wasn't strictly hereditary. Instead, the king was elected by a council of nobles. He still had to be part of the royal family, but in theory, the magnates could oust him. Now, okay, in Denmark, this was really just in theory. The position had become pretty much hereditary, and the nobles probably weren't powerful enough there to displace the king. But in Norway and Sweden, well, things were a little different. So on the other side of the Skagerrak and the Kattegat, what, you don't know the names for the bodies of water north of Denmark, separating it from Norway and Sweden? Well, now you do. Anyway, across the water, things weren't exactly going well. Magnus IV was the king of both places for much of the first half of the 14th century. His maternal grandfather, the king of Norway, died, and there was a civil war, with one side declaring him king at age three. And his father, Eric, was a potential heir to the Swedish throne, was imprisoned by his brother, and was probably starved to death, dying in 1318. Eric's followers became Magnus's mother's followers, but I want to be clear, these weren't men following Eric and then Magnus's mom and then her three-year-old son because they believed strongly in what these people stood for or in their power and rights to rule. These were nobles who were vying for their own power, each allying with members of the royal family in attempts to put weak kings on the throne who could easily be controlled. So in 1319, they named three-year-old Magnus king of Norway, and with his royal Swedish blood, king of Sweden as well. As historian Knut Gjerset wrote in his book, The History of the Norwegian People, quote, Thus Norway and Sweden were united for the first time by an accident which looked like a plan. Nothing but family interests had dictated this course, and the two kingdoms had nothing in common but the king. 
unquote. Obviously, Magnus's side prevailed, but by the 1350s, he found another rival, thanks to his lack of popularity with some nobles. It was his own son, Eric, and if you're keeping score, yes, Magnus's dad and son were both named Eric, meaning that in the local parlance, he was Magnus Ericsson and his son was Eric Magnusson, but that's probably only funny to me. Anyway, Eric, as well as Magnus's other son, Hakon, had been named heirs to the Swedish and Norwegian thrones, respectively. In 1355, Magnus named Hakon king of Norway, and the union split. Hakon was confirmed not by a national assembly, which had actually been more common in the preceding centuries, but by a royal council, leading churchmen and landowners. Now, he didn't give up the Norwegian crown because Magnus was magnanimous. Those are, in fact, two different words. No, rather, it was that he ruled from Sweden with a Swedish point of view and never consulted the royal council in Norway, which was totally sick of him. So they made him name Hakon heir. In their minds, they'd be getting a king who might actually pay attention to them without doing, like, a real coup, since it was just Magnus's son, and Magnus kind of was okay with it. Not that Norway was a major power at the time. Despite being a significant part of the Viking Age conquests of the 9th and 10th centuries, by the 14th century, Norway was a minor power. The Black Death had depopulated the kingdom, and the Cog had replaced the Viking longship as the best method of sea transport. But Norwegian policies maintained the old shipbuilding methods through local naval districts that were obligated to provide ships, but were never taught how to innovate or even imitate the latest technologies. So Norway kind of became a naval also ran. Eric, meanwhile, was told by Magnus to just sit tight, that he'd get Sweden eventually. But given nothing else as a gift at a time when his little brother got in Norway, he decided to go into rebellion, and he had plenty of Swedish nobles who didn't like Magnus on his side. These were members of the ruling council of the realm, the Swedish nobility group that ensured the monarch was an elected one. In 1353, Margaret was born, and though she wasn't born there, Margaret actually grew up in Sweden, raised by the daughter of an actual saint, Saint Bridget of Sweden. This daughter, Marta, ended up being the head of Margaret's court until 1371 when she died. When Margaret was about six years old, she was deemed ready to fulfill what was assumed to be her destiny. Marry a prince or someone to keep alliances strong and then give birth to a future, I don't know, maybe king? Things didn't work out quite that way, though. Valdemar and Magnus did make a marriage alliance in 1359, so Margaret would marry Hakon, and Valdemar would help Magnus fight off the rebellious Eric. But Eric and Magnus may have actually soon reconciled, although it didn't matter much because Eric also died that year. He was rumored to have been poisoned by his own mother, although it was probably just the Black Death. Throughout all of this, the late 1340s and early 1350s saw the peak of the Black Death, further sowing chaos and dread throughout an already difficult situation. Hakon VI continued to rule Norway, and he was named co-ruler of Sweden by Magnus. But the rebellious parts of Sweden that had been under Eric really stayed in the hands of the local magnates and out of the crown's control even after Eric's death. A few of the most implicatable rebellious Swedish nobles fled into exile. 
Since Valdemar was now allied with their enemy Magnus, they wanted nothing to do with the Danes, and they tried to get Hacken married to a princess of Holstein instead. Holstein is the German territory just south of Schleswig, which was, for many centuries, the southern part of Denmark. Otto von Bismarck used the regions to stoke nationalism, start a war with Denmark, and help create the German Empire in the 19th century. Anyway, Hacken marrying a princess from Holstein, just to the south of Denmark, would have caused a major issue for the Danes. Well, it took a few years, but the nobles didn't get their way with that effort, and in 1363, the marriage between Hacken and Margaret finally happened. That same year, King Valdemar's eldest son, Christopher, died, as did his younger son, also named Valdemar. This left only two of his six children still alive, a daughter named Ingeborg, who was married to the Duke of Mecklenburg, and the 10-year-old Margaret. Ingeborg had a son, the young Albert of Mecklenburg, and three daughters, but then she died in 1370. Meanwhile, in Sweden, a totally different Albert of Mecklenburg not the young son of Ingeborg and grandson of Valdemar, but rather the brother-in-law of Ingeborg, the younger brother of her husband Henry, who was the Duke of Mecklenburg, was given the task of making the rebellious, exiled Swedish nobles happy. One Swedish noble, Bo Janssen, held something like a third of all of the land of Sweden, which at the time covered much of Finland as well. He was the leader of the Swedish Council of Nobles and was opposed to what he saw as Valdemar's attempted takeover of Sweden. So he and his allies got Albert of Mecklenburg to invade in 1364 with a German army. Mary Hill, in her book Margaret of Denmark, writes, Upon Albert's arrival in Stockholm, quote, Those opposed to Magnus then assembled in convocation and solemnly declared their reasons for no longer rendering obedience to him as their king. Namely, that so grave were his misdeeds, they caused a universal scandal, unquote. Albert was crowned in Stockholm in 1364, and Magnus was in a spot of trouble. Albert fought Magnus and Hacken, and won, taking Magnus prisoner. Eventually, Valdemar did join in the fighting to help out his son-in-law. Albert wasn't popular in all of Sweden. Many would help the Magnus-Hacken-Valdemar alliance. But Albert was popular in cities with significant Hanseatic influence, and Stockholm was one of those cities which helped him a great deal. King Albert established himself enough that in 1368, in full control of at least eastern Sweden and Stockholm, he invaded Scania. Scania is a region at the southern tip of Sweden, which had been ruled by Denmark for many years. Valdemar had reconquered it after it had broken away. Albert was successful in taking at least part of it, making the Danes none too pleased with him. The conflict seemed to end there, at least for the time being, and Albert, despite some opposition, had pretty much secured the Swedish crown. Hakin, although unable to topple Albert in Sweden, retained his crown in Norway. In 1370, when Margaret was 18, she had a son named Olaf. The young mother and queen of Norway lived in Oslo with Hakin. The baby was born as the grandson of King Valdemar of Denmark, who now only had one living child, and the grandson of Magnus, the deposed king of Sweden, as well as the son of the current king of Norway, Hakon. No doubt, there were already visions of a union of the three kingdoms. 
King Valdemar died in 1375, and he might not have officially named an heir. He was 55, so he wasn't a young man, and he had indicated that he wanted the younger Albert, Ingeborg's son, as the next king, even if he hadn't, like, done anything formal about it. Then the younger Albert went ahead and started signing King of Denmark at the bottom of all his emails. Well, remember, this was a mostly hereditary monarchy posing as a northern German elective monarchy. Nothing pisses off the fake electors more than wannabe kings not giving them proper deference. So before any coronation occurred, Margaret turned on the charm offensive to get her own son named as the next king instead of Albert. According to Hill, Quote, the estates of Denmark accordingly assembled at Odense to settle the matter, but were for a time firmly divided into three parties, some being in favor of Albert, the son of Ingeborg, she being the elder daughter of the late king, a larger number urging the claims of Olaf, foreseeing thereby a possible union of the two kingdoms, and disliking the introduction of a German family, while the third party proposed to introduce a new dynasty, unquote. Margaret saw this indecision as an opportunity, and she worked to take advantage. First, she pressed for each particular region to make a decision on their own, rather than having a single decision by what will anachronistically call the Danish Senate. Then she worked the nobles and convinced the separate regions to proclaim Olaf, the crown prince of Norway, as king of Denmark. He was crowned king in May of 1375, at the ripe old age of four and a half. This, of course, meant that someone would have to rule for him. And with that, Margaret became the Queen of Denmark as queen regent for her young son. Gierset quotes what he calls a contemporary Lübeck chronicler, Lübeck being the leading Hanseatic city, showing just how swiftly and impressively Margaret had moved. She, quote, gained possession of Denmark as completely as her father Valdemar had held it. This she did with great ability in that she first gained possession of Scania and then negotiated with her enemies, the Counts of Holstein, concluded a permanent peace and granted them the Duchy of Schleswig as a fife. When this was done, a fear and trembling seized all the nobles of the kingdom as they saw the wisdom and power of this lady, and with their sons they now offered to serve her. Unquote. Valdemar's daughter, as she was known, had to figure out how to rule a kingdom that was inherently unstable because it was a regency and had just been ruled by a pretty ruthless autocrat for the previous 35 years. She set about unwinding some of the authoritarianism of her father. No doubt, she thought certain concessions and rights granted would gain her allies with influential groups of people. But she also probably realized that a woman, ruling as a regent for her young son, while realistic alternatives to rule were available, would not be able to rule with an iron fist. Too much dissatisfaction could make the nobles turn to her nephew Albert. Instead, she worked to create allies within Denmark. She restored rights to the priesthood. She granted privileges to the nobility that would fatten their wallets. She agreed that war could not be declared, quote, without the consent of the senators, prelates, and nobles of the realm, unquote. She also gave concessions to foreign merchants, which was crucial as her father had spent much of his time at war with the Hanseatic League about trading rights. And she didn't forget the peasants, who had certain rights granted as well. 
In all, it was a group of concessions that each individually weakened the monarchy, but taken together, strengthened her own position. Of course, there were still those who would prefer young Albert of Mecklenburg as the king. They reached out to Charles IV, Holy Roman Emperor, who offered some assistance, but whatever fleet he sent was at least partially destroyed in a storm, and this attempted rebellion came to nothing. In 1380, after Margaret had ruled as regent of Denmark for only about four years, her husband Hakon died. Hakon was, of course, king of Norway, and although he had for a brief time been the co-ruler of Sweden, he was not in any position to act on that claim at the time. Sweden was still ruled by the older Albert of Mecklenburg, although his grip on power may have been somewhat tenuous. Anyway, Margaret rushed off from court in Denmark to Oslo to get Olaf crowned. Olaf, now nine years old, became the king of Norway, in addition to Denmark. Margaret's successful rule in Denmark probably helped her, and she became regent in Norway as well. As stated by Gjersit, quote, a union was thus brought about between Norway and Denmark, which was destined to last 433 years. But the future consequences of so important a step seem to have caused no great concern, unquote. Margaret appointed a regent for Norway for when she was away, and was all set to rule two kingdoms. In 1385, Olaf was old enough to be king in his own right, not under a regency. His mommy told him to take the title of King of Denmark and Norway and heir to the King of Sweden, which he of course did because he was smart to do, and because despite the title, she was still in charge. And there were opportunities in Sweden, as Albert of Mecklenburg was not popular with much of the nobility. But then, in 1387, Olaf, the King of Denmark and Norway and heir to the Kingdom of Sweden, died at age 17. There was most likely some noise about naming his older cousin, the young Albert of Mecklenburg, not the King of Sweden one, but the grandson of Valdemar one, as the new King of Denmark. But Albert, only 25, soon died as well, leaving no obvious male heirs to the thrones. Of course, there was resistance now to the idea of Margaret being in charge. There were rumors spread that Olaf was alive and had either been taken into custody just before reaching the age of majority, or that he had retired to a monastery at her insistence. But despite this resistance, Margaret did end up being the one in charge. According to Mary Hill, and I'm going to do a quote within a quote thing here, so be ready. Ready? Okay. Quote, the queen was too popular to be readily displaced. And on his death, she had been at once formally elected Queen of Denmark and Scania, as the letters of election expressed it, quote, because she is the daughter of Valdemar and the mother of Olaf, and because we are satisfied with the moderation of her government, unquote. Unquote again, I guess. Okay, outside of any double quotation marks now, hope that wasn't too harrowing. Margaret was well-liked and well-respected enough that the nobles basically said, hey, she promised to give us these rights, and we promised to let her be in charge. Nothing's changed. She was proclaimed Queen of Denmark outright, but she couldn't really be Queen of Norway. She had no royal blood. And Norway seemed to have express laws, and who knows what I mean by express laws in 1380-whatever, forbidding female rulers. So in 1389, she adopted her sister Ingeborg's grandson, Eric. Yes, another Eric to be heir, and to quiet any dissent against her femaleness. 
Only about seven years old, the young man moved from his father's Duchy of Pomerania to be raised in Margaret's court in Denmark. Next, Margaret looked east to Sweden. The story of Sweden remained that of the disaffected magnates, and two decades on from helping Albert oust Magnus, they were disaffected once again. Albert ignored their advice, complained that he needed more money from them, and managed to anger the peasants too. It certainly didn't help that he brought a bunch of Germans in and gave them lands and titles. The nobility of Sweden started to talk about a new king. Hey, you know what might work? That queen over in Denmark and Norway. Yeah, I know she's Valdemar's daughter, and when he was king, we fought tooth and nail to keep him from having influence over us, and we, like, had an actual rebellion when our king let his son marry this lady, but how strong could she be? And I heard she's got money. The truth of it was, Margaret's deft touch in Norway and Denmark made them think she'd be a pretty hands-off kind of ruler. And it seems they had already been considering asking Olaf to be their king when he died suddenly. Probably knowing this really meant putting Margaret in charge anyway, they decided to take the leap with her. Margaret saw something more than just territory with Sweden. Her husband and her father both had tried to push the Hanseatic League out of their territory. The League was an alliance of northern German towns, one that centered on trade, but included military elements to it. Denmark and the other Scandinavian countries had dominated Baltic sea trade before the Hanseatic League, but by Margaret's time, the northern Germans were the leading economic power there. In fact, Valdemar had gone to war with the League in the 1360s, and he was trounced. Copenhagen was sacked, and Denmark came out in rough shape. He allowed the League to have free trade rights throughout the Baltic and gave up rights to important fisheries, which were a significant source of income. Margaret saw an opportunity to create a unified block of her own, one that might be strong enough to fight the Hanseatic League, or at least one that had enough territories to have a more significant amount of trade coming to their own ports. And so, in 1389, after the usual demurring, she finally agreed to the Swedish Senate's request that she take over. Of course, there were plenty of noblemen who had gotten rich and powerful thanks to Albert, so there was some resistance. Hill writes, quote, The queen accordingly poured Danish troops into Sweden, where they encountered a vigorous army led by the king himself, supported by his brother, Henry of Mecklenburg. Unquote. The House of Mecklenburg had claims to Norway in addition to Sweden, so they weren't big fans of Margaret. King Albert sent Margaret a sharpening stone. Hill says it was either to mock her army's preparedness or to mock her for being a woman, like it was for sharpening her sewing tools or something. Either way, it wasn't meant to be a nice thing. The two armies met, maybe a thousand or so on each side, although Margaret probably had more troops, in the southwest of the Swedish mainland. Albert attempted to make some sort of surprise attack or catch the Danes unaware, but his troops weren't ready themselves. A bunch of his knights ended up getting slowed down in the marshes separating the two armies, which he had thought would be frozen, but they weren't. The Battle of Osle, wasn't a huge collection of forces, and it didn't have significant casualties. But Albert and many of the leading noblemen on his side were captured. She had him, his son, and others imprisoned in Lindholm in southern Sweden. That area was now won over, but Stockholm in the east, and the most important city, continued to hold out, 
In fact, there was a large German contingent there, and at one point, a group of German burghers murdered 70 or more Swedish-speaking, Margaret-allied burghers by locking them in a building and setting it on fire. In 1395, Albert was released from his captivity, but not before signing the Treaty of Lindholmen, that being the name of the castle prison. He agreed to either pay a ransom of 60,000 marks or give up all claims on Stockholm. Margaret knew he wouldn't be able to come up with the money, and Albert was effectively done in Sweden. Stockholm and the rest of Sweden was hers. First Denmark, then Norway, and now she was the Queen of Sweden, too. Technically, this was a personal union, so this gave her rule over three separate kingdoms, rather than one single kingdom that stretched from Greenland and Iceland, as well as the Shetland and Orkney Islands, which were all part of Norway over to what is the St. Petersburg region of Russia now, and as far south as Schleswig on the border with Holstein and the Holy Roman Empire, and as far north as, well, the northern tip of Norway, as far north as you can go there. And of course, this whole time, as we've seen with every other queen we profiled, all the magnates and nobles from her different countries begged her to marry, because, you know, we think you're a great queen, and we wish for your health and long life, but really, you're just a lady. But she wasn't interested. Instead, she was interested in uniting her kingdoms. In 1397, she arranged for her grandnephew's coronation to be held in the fortress of Kalmar. There, with attendance of important lords and churchmen from all his kingdoms, the elected king was crowned. Thus began what is known today as the Kalmar Union, and according to Hill, Quote, while the excitement was at its height and the attention of the three kingdoms directed towards her, Margaret published her famous Treaty of Kalmar, thereby sealing the union which she had laboriously welded of the three Scandinavian countries on July 20th, 1397, unquote. So what was the treaty? Well, first and foremost, it was a union of the kingdoms of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. But in practice, it was a bulwark against Hanseatic League expansion. While each kingdom would operate on its own for domestic affairs, albeit with Eric as their sole king and Margaret as their regent, each would act as one for foreign affairs. It was a tight military alliance meant to unite them against the Germans. There were plenty of other things outlined in the plan. Revenue from one country couldn't be spent in another. Leadership for each country came from within. No kingdom above the other in terms of communication, king's time spent there, etc., etc. There were also provisions to keep the union from being divided in the future after King Eric was gone. However, while the union was laid out in a treaty, it was never formally signed. Perhaps one of the kingdoms wasn't willing to acquiesce to all the details. Or it's possible that Margaret was good without formalizing the union, because in practice, Margaret was the ruler of these three kingdoms and they were united under her. Checking the power of the Hanseatic League was important, but she also wanted to check the power of the Swedish nobility, which she most certainly viewed as the main culprit in the civil wars and problems over the last few decades there. She did this by trying to give more rights and privileges to the merchants and burghers in the kingdom. This served to both act as a balance of power of the nobility but also allow her kingdoms to compete and cooperate with the Hanseatic League in trade. She recognized the importance of trade, and she worked hard to promote it. 
Margaret ruled mostly from Denmark, but the other countries had by this point not really lived with a strong central government. So they continued to be, as it were, and she was their sovereign. Well, Eric was their sovereign, but Margaret was in charge, and so Denmark was in charge. She left many of the highest administrative positions empty in order to increase her influence on the different kingdoms, and there were complaints that there were too many Danes in the governments of Norway and Sweden. In 1404, Margaret sent an army to invade Gotland, a large island off of Sweden which held a commanding position in the Baltic Sea. Her father had conquered it decades before, but at the time, it was in the hands of the Teutonic Knights. She was able to take most of the island, other than the fortified town of Visby, the most important Hanseatic port in the North Baltic. The knights returned with a large force and booted her men, but in the end, she decided to purchase it from them, and by 1409, the island belonged to Margaret, and the Teutonic Order and the Kalmar Union had peace. This allowed the Teutonic Order to know that their northern flank was secure the next year, when they marched into Poland to get their asses handed to them by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the Battle of Grunwald. Also in 1404, Gerhard, the Count of Holstein and Schleswig, died in battle. This was one of those guys who held titles in multiple states, Holstein in the Holy Roman Empire and Schleswig in Denmark. He had always been a thorn in the side of Margaret. It is said that while he attended the coronation in Kalmar, he didn't actually pay homage to Margaret but she lacked the power to challenge him, and he was technically her vassal, so she just kind of let him be. She still claimed the land as part of Denmark as a whole, but she chose patience as her strategy. It paid off at least for a time, as Gerhardt's wife was not the kind of woman that Margaret was. Instead, she first begged her deceased husband's brother Henry for help in raising her little boys to be dukes. But of course, Henry decided instead to claim the duchy for himself. So she turned north and asked Margaret for help. This allowed Margaret to take Schleswig essentially unopposed, and she was able to take personal possession of her southernmost duchy. Henry, however, wasn't done. For some unrecorded reason, there was a break between Margaret and the Duchess. And suddenly what seemed like a cakewalk in Schleswig turned into an actual war. Eric of Pomerania, her great-nephew who was now in his late 20s and was technically the king, was named leader of the army. In 1410, he led the Danish army to defeat, although the commander-in-chief claimed it wasn't his fault. Instead, he blamed Abraham Broderson, an experienced and talented commander who also happened to be an unscrupulous and extremely wealthy magnate. He was a favorite of the queen, perhaps her lover, and he was sort of able to do whatever he wanted. In other words, he was somewhat of a rival to Eric. So, whether from false pretense or not, Eric blamed him for the loss and had him executed. The war did progress, and negotiations did as well, which Margaret attended to personally. After a day of negotiations in Schleswig, Margaret left, perhaps fleeing a plague that had appeared in the city. But getting onto her ship to leave, she suddenly became ill. She died there, in the harbor, on October 28th, 1412. Margaret was the last descendant of Gorm the Old, Harold Bluetooth, and Svein Forkbeard, the kings of Denmark from the 10th century, and the first historically attested kings there. 
Eric of Pomerania became king in reality, not just in name. But he was not an entirely successful one. He wasn't horrendous, but he spent most of his reign dealing with a war with Holstein that Margaret seemed to have been about to end via negotiation. He fought hard, and again, he wasn't a blundering fool, but he couldn't conclude the war, which meant he drained Denmark's treasury into this small territory to the south. He also got himself and the Kalmar Union back into conflict with the Hanseatic League, something Margaret had wisely avoided during her reign. Now, maybe it was unavoidable. But either way, a Hanseatic victory severely weakened Eric, and he was eventually deposed in 1439. The union, however, that Margaret had created and ruled in Eric's name outlasted them both. It had a few interruptions, but in the end, it lasted until 1523, when Sweden proclaimed their own king after a brief war of liberation. Denmark and Norway, however, remained united for nearly 300 more years. The Kalmar Union was never as strong as it could have been. There were no great leaders after Margaret, no one to hold this new union together and make it something more than just three separate kingdoms. Eric spent all their time and resources focused on fighting Holstein over Schleswig, something completely inconsequential to the rest of the Union. And then when he did fight the Hanseatic League, which was much more interesting to the merchant fleets of Sweden and Norway, he lost. With similar ethnicities, languages, commercial interests, and cultures, there was an opportunity to unite the three kingdoms into one Scandinavian state but there was never a ruler strong or wise enough to accomplish this. Margaret herself missed out on the chance to reinvigorate the navy, which had been outclassed by the Hanseatic League and destroyed by wars and piracy. Instead, Margaret acted as a typical strong ruler of her day. She sought to enrich Denmark and herself by proxy. It seems she never really thought of truly uniting the kingdoms, which also just made her a sovereign of her time. Very similar things were happening in France and Burgundy as dukes and kings scrambled to get more lands into their possession, not to unite the French people in any meaningful way. She was impressive, and she was unique because she was so powerful and she was a woman, but she wasn't necessarily transcendent. Gearset writes, Quote, it is quite evident that Margaret, the first great ruling queen in European history, possessed skill in administration as well as diplomacy, but her system of statesmanship was, nevertheless, only a continuation of that of her predecessors. It was her ambition to rule over a large realm, to gather the threads of administration and political power into her own hands. When the three kingdoms were finally under her sway, she sought to perpetuate her kingdom by strengthening the power and influence of the crown and by increasing her revenue and private possessions, unquote. Margaret should be remembered as a formidable ruler for her kingdoms, and she used patience, wisdom, and understanding to improve her lot. Despite these traits, she was by no means unenergetic, and she was often what one might call Machiavellian. She wasn't afraid to bend or break the law to accomplish what she needed, and in that way, she was very much like her father, willing to do what needed to be done to improve her own position. Although perhaps it didn't fulfill all of its potential, Margaret stitched together a union of the three kingdoms of Scandinavia. The Kalmar Union, perhaps Margaret's greatest legacy, 
remained in place for a century and a half, and the union of Norway and Denmark lasted several more. What was probably most impressive was that, at a time when there was really no such thing as a European queen with real power, Margaret ruled three kingdoms at once for over two decades, in mostly the same way that any strong king would have done at the time. Next episode, we'll move forward a century, and we'll move to the south and east, to a king who reunited a fractured kingdom, creating a major power in southeastern Europe, strong enough to hold back Ottoman invasions and defeat the Habsburgs, at least until it fractured again after his death. Thanks for listening.